1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: So let me start off with a little personal story of my own. I am a stand-up comedian and I'm blind and in 2019 I made my debut appearance on the brilliant BBC panel show, Would I Lie to You? I told the story about me and my deaf neighbour and how for ages we both thought each other were being rude because, well, I'd talk to him and say hello and he wouldn't answer me but then apparently he was waving at me and I was completely blanking him. But finally, when we did figure out each other's shortcomings, we swapped mobile numbers and we were able to communicate with each other over text as good neighbours do. We had a very good neighbourly relationship and he was even happy for me to share that story on the telly. I suppose what I'm saying is you should never really just assume things about people, even the people who we think we've got sussed out, because people are often nicer than our naturally judgmental selves will give them credit for. But it's a lovely end to my story, isn't it, eh? The deaf guy and the blind guy getting on like good neighbours, good friends. Except it's not entirely true. I did have a deaf neighbour. We did both think each other was being rude. It did play out just how I told the story on the telly. But the truth is, I never did ask him whether I could tell the story on the TV. In fact, I don't even think he knew I was a comedian. And he's even moved back to Australia now, without ever knowing that I spoke about him on the telly. So maybe that makes me an awful neighbour. And now we've got somebody else living downstairs. So the true tragedy in all of this is we can no longer make as much noise as we like. Oh, how we miss him. Welcome to That Podcast, an audio storytelling project that sees writers, comedians, musicians, scientists, journalists, and everyday people from all walks of life telling tales of the extraordinary in the everyday to make sense of the world we live in. I'm your host, Chris McCausland. In today's episode, That Podcast, where we rely on the kindness of strangers and wonder if generally we're good people or not so much. We're going to be talking about neighbours, communities, and
0: kindness.
3: You are invited to yet another Zoom meeting.
0: Turn your cameras on so we can see you. Even when I was doing the tarot readings, I was like dressed up as a wizard.
4: Whoever you are, I've always depended on the kindness
5: of strangers.
1: It's not necessarily the case that they are more immoral than the rest of us. It's just they have more opportunities.
5: My family came and said goodbye to me. But against the odds, I turned round and I fought back and I
6: survived. Good citizens have been doing their part to support the war against the invisible enemy. What makes you happy? What makes you feel frustrated?
0: I hope
4: I don't sound arrogant by saying that this lockdown for me has not affected
2: me in the least.
5: The grandmothers, like, grab a pot of rice and all the opium and...
2: (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a hell of a party. (laughs) The pandemic has got us all looking at our neighbours and our communities in new ways. I mean, think back to the first lockdown, when we were still clapping the NHS and putting rainbows in our windows. People were setting up neighbourhood WhatsApp groups all over the place. And people who had never demonstrated any interest in communities were suddenly delivering shopping to their elderly and vulnerable neighbours. And there was a rallying cry for us all to channel Britain's blitz spirit. What does that even mean? Blitz spirit? I mean, what is that? Keep calm and carry on, because here's the thing, keep calm and carry on, it's a bit of a lie. The famous poster was barely used during the war. Nobody knew about it for ages until somebody stumbled across one in the back end of some obscure bookshop about 20 years ago. And now you can find it on mugs, t-shirts, baby grows, it's all over the place. But it was barely used. If you'd have asked someone about it during the Blitz, they'd have looked at you a bit funny. But now we pretend it's some sort of backbone of our Britishness. You know that famous picture from the Blitz of the milkman carrying on his rounds through the rubble of bombed out London? It's staged. The photographer Fred Morley was worried that if he took pictures of just the destruction of the city, it wouldn't get past the censors because it would be too demoralising. So he got his assistant to pose in a borrowed milkman's outfit amidst a load of bottles, which is pretty clever. I'm not sure what would confuse kids more these days, the idea of this country being bombed to the extent that it was, or the idea of a milkman. What's one of them? But the things we think of as blitz spirit are sometimes these mad made-up things because when you take a minute to mull it over, keeping calm and carrying on isn't really what's going on. Now or then. I mean, during the blitz, people didn't survive by just carrying on life as normal. They followed government guidelines, blacked out the windows, queued for rations, went to shelters when the alarms went off. And you can't tell me they didn't have some mental health problems during the blitz. There was some messed up shit going on it's not all doom and gloom though keep it light it's only a podcast there are plenty of true stories from the blitz of people playing mouth organs singing in the air raid shelters dancing even grabbing their tap shoes before they head down there i guess a bit like those people on youtube playing their guitars off their balconies these days so it was a mix of resilience and struggle of devastation and joy but ultimately it was a really hard time feels kind of relatable doesn't it so right from the start, let's scrap some of the crap about Stiff Up a Lip and all that, and instead let's have a proper look at British communities and how we're really doing.
5: I live just on the outskirts of Nottingham. We've moved into this area, and we just found that actually for the first three years, we didn't really know the neighbours. We used to say hi to a couple from a distance, but not much more than that. And then Come December 2020, my family came down with COVID and you know, we're like a few miles from family and friends and we just thought what do we do in this situation, none of us now can go out and actually my neighbours became an absolute lifeline to us, regularly checking up on us, sending us messages just to see how our progress was each day we'd have people we'd never spoke to face to face now dropping medication off for us picking up prescriptions for us dropping off soup for us offering to do our shopping they were so kind they'd ask about my children because they'd know like how out of action me and my husband were even one evening my inhalers finished and we had to just ask one of them like there was a half an hour window before the pharmacy shut and They went out and got inhalers at the point where, you know, I was struggling to breathe anyway and the inhalers helped me a little bit. So it was massive. It was an integral part of our recovery and actually a lot of my neighbours are in their 60s, 70s and 80s and shielding so yeah it's just a real eye-opener I am really grateful for them now I know about 10 of their names we talk if we ever see them passing we all chat it now feels like the neighbourhood I grew up with and the neighbours I remember that you could knock on the door to or you can ask something to but I think in recent years, we've become a bit cut off from neighbours because we live very busy lives. But actually, lockdown really changed that. I mean, I know my neighbours are talking about a post-lockdown street get-together. So massively changed and massively grateful for it, really.
2: For me, I actually had a pretty positive experience with my neighbours during lockdown. We share a big communal garden out the back and we're often out there, you know, in our own little bubbles. And it's nice that now we've all got a relationship that we didn't have before. We used to just say hello, you know, and now we know each other's names. We know what we do for a living. We have actual conversations like friends. And it only took a global pandemic to get us there. But for everyone that stuck to the rules, there were those that flaunted them. For all those that did their bit to help a neighbor, there were those that tried to exploit the vulnerable. There's always arseholes. So the question of this episode is, what's the story that we're going to tell ourselves about the pandemic in years to come? In a moment when we've all had to rely on each other to make it through these difficult times, are we treating each other with kindness? Are we passing the test? Are we generally good people? How have all the events of this last year changed the fabric of our communities, changed the structure of society? And how do we want to see a change in the future when we're through all this? Let's have a peek through the proverbial curtains at True Community Spirit.
3: I actually got married and moved in with my husband end of January, and we were just unpacking and things. And all of a sudden, the pandemic hit, and before I knew it, I hadn't got a chance to kind of go out, explore the city, meet people. I had no friends in the city. I didn't know anyone. I'd never even met any of the people in my building. So, come end of February, I see a sign on the door of the people who live upstairs, and it said, It's a boy. So, I thought, okay, I don't know them, but they just had a baby and we're going into lockdown and I feel like we should do something for them because I don't know if they have any family here, if they can see anyone. So I, I made them some biscuits and I didn't know what to do because I didn't feel comfortable knocking at that point. I didn't know them. So I just left the biscuits outside the door with a note saying, we saw the sign, congratulations on your baby. Here are some biscuits. But then a few days later, we've got a box at our doorstep and it was a box of sweets and then a few months later, it was Ramadan. And I knew that they were Muslim because I think my husband had mentioned, oh, the couple upstairs are Muslim. So I thought, okay, in the true spirit of Ramadan, we've got to do something for the neighbors. So we left them some food. And this time I put my number on on the post-it note and my name and the woman upstairs texted me back to say thank you. And we got into a little bit of a chat conversation and it was lovely and she was so nice and we're friends now. But before that, we'd literally only been passing food back and forth. It was almost like that act of leaving the food outside was connection enough at the time.
2: Welcome to Act 1, where we learn about survival of the friendliest. I'm curious if, as a species, we are predisposed to be kind. I know Darwin would argue that in the animal kingdom it's survival of the fittest. But isn't that what sets us apart from most species? That we are social creatures who live in communities governed by rules that let us coexist relatively happily. That's our whole thing, isn't it? That we're capable of kindness, empathy, compassion and communication. I thought I'd speak to an expert about all this, so I spoke to Dr Oliver Scott-Curry.
1: I'm the research director for a charity called Kindness.org. We research the causes and consequences of kindness, and I'm also a research associate in the anthropology department at the University of Oxford, where we work on similar topics, more focused on morality and what it means to be good and how moral values vary around the world. I think the first time I realized I was really interested in it was my parents had a board game called Scruples, which was a bit like Trivial Pursuit, but you had to predict how other people would respond to moral dilemmas and I remember playing that as a kid thinking wow I really would like to know what I'm supposed to do here and yeah and the rest is history the study
2: of morality is something that historically has been very much a philosophical
1: area of interest really for people but you're a scientist looking at this we have all these moral thoughts and feelings and ideas and rules and customs mm-hmm. and the question is where do they come from how do they work what are they for And traditionally, philosophers have struggled in vain to answer these questions for millennia. But now we're at a very interesting time when there's lots of exciting developments in science that's finally answering these questions. And so we, in order to study morality scientifically like anything else, we come up with theories about it, about what it is and how it works. And then we put those theories to the test with psychology experiments Mm -hmm. or cross-cultural surveys. How would you define morality and kindness? Morality is a collection of cooperative rules that help us get along, help us work together, help us keep the peace. So why we feel loyal to our groups, why we return favours, why we why we're heroic why we're deferential why we're fair and so on mm-hmm. so when you're talking about love and compassion and empathy and forgiveness and respect and tolerance uh, all come under the heading of kindness some other bits of morality have got a bit more of an edge to them so if you're talking about you know divine retribution or punishment mm-hmm. or condemnation and stuff like that that's a little bit less nice and still effective still helps Keep societies going, but Mm -hmm. I guess kindness is the nice end of morality. Okay. Like every bit of human behavior, morality is a mixture of nature and nurture. Most of our moral dispositions seem to be evolutionarily ancient. You can find simpler examples of them in other creatures, in primates and other mammals and other insects, all doing similar cooperative things. So we seem to have a deep seated set of moral instincts, Mm -hmm. but we're also a very inventive species we can invent new ways of doing things new ways of cooperating so what we inherit is as it were a set of moral genes but also a set of moral cultural institutions
2: how does it differ between communities around the world in terms of is it universal or is it culturally very different
1: morality philosophers have been arguing about this for millennia whether there's any universal moral rules that all humans would agree on, or whether morality is radically different from one place to another. And we recently did a study where we combed through 600 accounts of ethics from 60 societies from around the world, looking to see whether these basic types of morality were universal or not. So we we're interested to see whether these 60 cultures thought it was morally good to to look after your family, to be loyal to your group, to return favours, to be brave, to defer to superiors, to be fair, and to respect others' property. And cut a long story short, they were. We found examples of these moral rules all over the place. We found examples of most of them in most cultures, and they were evenly distributed around the world. So they weren't Western or Eastern or Northern or Southern rules. They seem to be part of a a common set of principles that everyone everywhere agrees on. But that doesn't mean that morality everywhere is identical. I tend to think of it as a graphic equalizer, Mm -hmm. that everyone has the same knobs, but they get twiddled in different ways. So, in some places in more traditional societies for example the family values and loyalty to your local group loom relatively large because mm-hmm. people are interacting in small groups with their kin a lot more whereas in modern more mobile individualistic societies those values are still present but the rules for dealing with strangers like reciprocity and fairness loom relatively large so Everyone seems to have the same principles. They recognize the same principles, but they prioritize them in different ways. And that generates an awful lot of variation between cultures in terms of you know, what gets prioritized or which way people jump when they're faced with a dilemma.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there certainly seem to be some things that are universally good, and they are the core things that we predict, these kind of cooperative rules that work really well, these cooperative rules that solve problems, social problems that all cultures, all societies have there's also kind of a lot of noise as well so you know in one culture you can't eat this thing in the other culture you must eat this thing on a particular occasion there's some arbitrary variation too but in terms of these core cooperative principles they seem to be universal
2: you've talked a lot about the kindness genes and Mm -hmm. how kindness is
1: something that is genetically encoded in us really yeah so studies have shown that about a third of the differences between people in how kind they are are due to differences in genes roughly speaking niceness is normally distributed so up one end you get the saints and up the other end you get the psychopaths and most of us Mm -hmm. are somewhere in the middle i mean all genes there's a long and twisted pathway between their immediate effects on the cell that they inhabit and then a long way down the line the behaviors the phenotypes that emerge the other end but i've just putting the finishing touches on a study at the moment looking at whether different genes are responsible for different moral values and that's what we find so we've now got some evidence to show that for example the genes that influence how important you think fairness is are not the same as the genes that influence how important you think bravery is or loyalty. Mm -hmm. So different genes do have different effects on different aspects of our morality, but exactly what the root is from one to the other is still unclear. Yeah, okay. It's likely to be a mixture, so people can be born, as it were, kind and unkind, and they are shaped by their circumstances and their and their opportunities. If you grow up in a dangerous world where it's risky to trust others, mm-hmm. then you would expect people to be less trusting and perhaps less trustworthy. Whereas if you grow up in a safe, prosperous world where putting your trust in others makes you less vulnerable, um, or there's greater rewards to cooperation, then you expect people to be more moral uh, in that sense. And it also depends on the immediate circumstances you find yourself in. I was talking to a, a financial ethics guy a few weeks ago. And he said people were very down on bankers or some of these huge financial frauds where, you know, millions or billions of pounds go missing. And he pointed out that it's not necessarily the case that they are more immoral than the rest of us. It's just they have more opportunities. And what would people in general do if they had a job whereby, you know, moving a decimal place somewhere, they could become a millionaire. Most of us never have that opportunity. And so we're never tempted and we never find out if we were in that way. The people that go into managing these transactions do get tested and obviously some of them fail.
2: Yeah. And I suppose tendency towards risk and greed is always sitting there under the <laughs> under the surface yeah. waiting to re-return, yeah. isn't it? How much do you think, Oliver, that people's morality or people's desire to be moral and do kind things is because they want to do kind things and be nice to other people and how much of it is because they want other people to think that they are good and I'm thinking very much with regard to like social media you can't load up your social media feeds these days without seeing people virtue signaling
1: all over the place people are intrinsically motivated to be good and pursue the things they care about and help others that they care about they're also motivated to broadcast those benevolent behaviors to others to reap the reputational benefits of doing so and that's fair enough people should be praised for doing good things, and also to set a good example to others in the hope that other people will be elevated by witnessing uh, altruistic acts and go off and do something kind themselves. So virtue signaling is fine if you're virtuous. The problem is that if you're just signalling without actually doing the virtuous acts in the first place, if you're just trying to get the benefits of being thought of a good person without actually doing anything, and that's what we call a hypocrite.
2: You know, just 20 years ago, we all lived in a much smaller world in terms of the access that we had to communities and, you know, people outside of our own bubbles. I mean,
1: generally, I think social media has tremendous potential, but we're still figuring out how to use it. It's very new. People have argued that in some ways it's analogous to when people first started to live in settled communities and build the first cities 5,000 plus years ago. To begin with, no one had a clue what they were doing. There were problems with sewage, and they kept the animals in the house, and everyone was getting diseases, and it was noisy and disgusting. Mm -hmm. And it took a while for people to figure out how to do cities. But ultimately, it was quite a good move, and we're all better off for it. So, in some ways, social media is similar that we've suddenly all been thrust together and we're figuring out how to get along. There's some great things social media does, there's some not so great things. But I'm optimistic.
2: Would you say that being kind to other people is a good way of making yourself feel better, or starting off by being kind to yourself is a good way of making yourself
1: be kinder to other people? Well, it's certainly the case that helping makes you happy. Yeah. And people are often surprised that that's the case. So, in a typical study, they say they have 100 people and they give everyone $10. And to half the group, they say, spend this on yourself. And the other half, they say, spend this on somebody else. Yeah. And they go off and through like the dozen or so experiments that have been done like that, on average, the people that spend the money on somebody else report being happier than the people who spend it on themselves. Another wrinkle in that is that if you ask people in advance, which one do you think you'd be happier doing? Which one would you prefer? Yeah. People consistently say, well, obviously, I'd rather spend the money on myself. So people are are wrong about how they're likely to feel when they do it. So they're pleasantly surprised when they do help somebody else or when they do spend the money on somebody else. So what that indicates is that there's a sort of unmet appetite for altruism. Do
2: you think that experiences like this, the pandemic that we're all living through at the moment, do you think that generally they do make us kinder?
1: I think it goes both ways. Certainly it can bring out the best in us and surrounded by opportunities to help. Certainly people do jump into the fray and they do do amazing things. But you know, people differ and bad people also take advantage of a crisis to pursue their nefarious goals. So I think it can go both ways. But it's certainly not as bad as some people have argued that in the wake of a natural disaster, then the whole apocalyptic scene emerges and it's something out of Mad Max. Most people are good most of the time. And a crisis can bring out the best of us and a few others take advantage.
2: If we're talking about survival of the kindest, though, there's definitely one story we can't leave out. Even though this happened a while ago, these men shot to fame in 2020 when Dutch historian Rutger Bregman published their story in his book Humankind. Rutger, who was researching human kindness, was looking to see if he could find a real-life historical example of the Lord of the Flies to learn if people shipwrecked on an island really would turn on each other like they do in the book. And he actually found himself pleasantly surprised by discovering the opposite strap in because it's a pretty wild story so over 50 years ago in the Pacific nation of Tonga there was a teenager called Sione Felipe Tatao known as Mano for short one day him and his five mates got immensely bored at their boarding school who can blame him and decided to nick a fishing boat to sail 500 miles to Fiji as you do except they get caught in a major storm which wrecks their boat and they drift at sea for eight long days without food or water before landing on a deserted island called Atta. And this is where, if it was Lord of the Flies, it would all start going tits up, except it doesn't. They pull together and somehow manage to survive for over a year. They set up a communal food garden, rainwater storage, chicken pens, a permanent fire, a badminton court and a local branch of Starbucks. Okay, one of them isn't true. There was no badminton court. But there's always a Starbucks. Okay, look, I don't want to make light of what was obviously a terrifying experience for the boys, but it is impressive, the amount they managed to achieve by working together for each other's survival. I mean, if this isn't a testament to our capacity for kindness and cooperation, I don't know what is. I used to be a teenage boy, and we are pretty rubbish at everything. So if teenage boys can do that, then any of us can. As nice as that story is, though, I just can't believe no one's turned it into a reality TV show yet. Take a group of teenagers away from their friends and family for a year, dump them on an island and see whether they manage to build some chicken coops so or whether they garrot each other to death at the chicken wire. But, you know, maybe somebody from Channel 5's listening in. Check your TV listings in about six months, guys. Oliver and Mano's stories do give us reason to believe that, you know, maybe adversity can make friends out of strangers. And the facing serious challenges does bring us closer together.
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
6: You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection,
2: Act 2, where we talk to strangers. Something interesting that I noticed during the pandemic was how much strangers reached out to each other on the internet. Now look, I'm not going to lie, I'm not the biggest fan of social media. I think maybe because me wife says that Facebook allows me to react to posts now with three more emotions than I actually have, and I just find the whole thing a bit overwhelming. But it's been fascinating to see the internet explode with perfect strangers encountering each other and forging relationships on everything from chat roulette to Tinder and Twitch. Sounds like two gerbils, doesn't it? Tinder and Twitch. But there's always two sides to the coin, isn't there? And digital communication just isn't for everyone. For some, losing in-person communication, it's been more challenging than for others. For instance, let's take playwright Shahid Iqbal Khan, who struggled to adapt to Zoom when his day job in pharmacy switched to remote working. Shahid is deaf, and he saw his ability to connect with people fettered away by a technology that just has not evolved far enough yet to work right for him. So he wrote the following piece, The Return, to try and recreate the experience of listening fatigue and communication breakdown brought on by trying to interact via Zoom with the use of hearing aids. So let's, let Shahid take us all on a poetical journey inside the mind of a man desperate to communicate and connect in a discombobulating world of technology.
4: Banish the world out of my life, out of my bedroom, Slash office. Slash canteen. It's now but an invader. An invasive intruder. Slash work. Slash life. Slash balance. Jounce it out of my duvet. My duvet is my home. My castle. My Rome. My superpower. My Berlin Wall. It's my cocoon. A soundproof husk. A territory. A no go zone for bullshit and noise.
3: Sandra is inviting you to a Zoom meeting.
4: Martin is
1: inviting you to a Teams meeting.
3: Tom is inviting you to a Hangout meeting. Can you see my screen? I'm sharing it right now. Uh, This page is all the policies that. uh, And I've updated
0: them just this morning. In fact, who is that? Mute. Mute. All right. Uh, so, what was I saying? Uh, oh, sorry. That's my neighbor. Listen, let's reschedule this meeting.
1: Ta-ta.
5: That's what that means. is their way of saying take your annual leave even though you're stuck at home doing nothing. Hello?
4: Adam? Adam? You there? Hello? Uh, I, I didn't catch that. I said, that's
5: all. A lo- it's like all a load of rubbish. Why we'll can't just carry our holidays forward into the next year? Because what's the point of bugging anyone over this time when nothing happens to you? They're arranging a socially distanced picnic near the lake. <laughs> I'm
0: wearing
4: a mask. i uh, see if we want to help. No, no,
2: I have not gotten
5: far one.
4: Repeat that, please. Er, uh, repeat what? You said something before, I didn't catch it. i Oh! <laughs> And eat out to help out. This to stay at home. You may only leave home for limited reasons. Table service only.
1: Sun closing. Many many of of the um, and, and I think the eat out to help out initiative will do just that.
4: We were high on hope gas. Snippets of advice were waging wars. Eat out to fan the flames. Picnic in the park. Meet up for a lark. Then this bubble deflated. We were discombobulated perplexed, hyper-agitated, hoovered back indoors.
2: Colleagues, outdoor meet-up has been
4: cancelled. Hello, I just about understood your message. I would appreciate it if you didn't wear a mask when recording voice notes. Thank you.
5: Oh, sorry.
1: <laughs> oh!
3: You are invited to yet another Zoom meeting.
5: Turn your camera's on so
4: we can see you. Yeah. Yeah, that's my good.
1: I'm proud of all that we have a
4: Excuse me. Excuse me. How long's this meeting for?
1: Three
4: hours. Why send a short email when you can waste my time on Zoom? Why send a quick text when you could send a long email? Why bother keeping quiet when you can WhatsApp? So
3: some, sometimes I get panic attacks. Is it going to be like this forever? <laughs> no, 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 no,
6: no, no,
4: no. For too long I accepted the new status quo. Forgot myself. Forgot the side that meets it halfway. Forgot to ask for what I need. Drifting away into yes, sir, yes, sir. Melding into an abyss of people-pleasing. Time to return. Reset. Re-centre. Accord my time reverently. My energy discriminately.
3: Hi, Adam. Hi.
5: How are you? I was just thinking about checking in with you. There are a few things I need to talk to you about. Everyone in the team keeps asking about you. We're all missing you. But anyway, as you're probably aware, if we've been reading the emails, we're about
4: setting out you know, Tom, at the moment. You
5: know,
4: Tom, that instrument in the mouth, people overuse it with their ums and ahs and what about her is. My ears need a break.
5: Oh, poor thing.
4: You see, the thing is, look, I'm not a poor thing. I need help. It gets too much and and I hear and I listen and it's paralysing because just listening isn't enough. It's a puzzle I've got to unscramble every day. I have to take in the world via laptop or via phone, coming via my hearing aids. By the time I experience sound, it's already second hand.
5: Things will start going back to normal soon. We're planning a return to the workplace by the end
4: of this month. We can't month. have the old normal back. Or the new normal. It's got to be a different normal. I get listening fatigue. I can't work the way we did before. Everyone talking in all directions. It has to change. I need regular breaks.
5: I'm so glad you could tell me this. When you come back, I'll set up a one-to-one meeting. And we can discuss ways to make the workplace more accessible for you.
4: Thank you. Well, bedroom slash office slash everything else. Drop the office, drop the slash, as I look to the future and hail the return of my bedroom. To what it was my bedroom. <sighs>
2: So that was Shahid Iqbal Khan's The Return. And I can tell you that Shahid is very much looking forward to getting back to work, normal work, as I'm sure we all are. I'm a comedian, obviously, and I can't wait for proper gigs with real humans in a room to get back up and running. It's It's been amazing in a way that comedians have been able to do some form of work over lockdown. There's been lots of comedy going on on Zoom. I haven't done any of that personally. I, I think really you need to be able to see the smiling faces on the screen because a lot of them mute themselves. And I just think that I'd just be talking at me wall. So <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't bothered with any of that. When we did leave one of the lockdowns and we were allowed to do things outside for a, a small period of time, there was some driving comedy shows going on. Uh, where everyone would drive to the gig in their car, stay in their car in like a big car park, and the show would go on, and people would sit in their car and laugh in their car. So you, obviously you can't hear the laughter, and I was asked if I wanted to do them, and they were beeping their horns if they found something funny, but there was a, a complaint about the noise, so they're not allowed to do that anymore. So if they find something funny now, they just flash their lights. yeah. Flash a light to the blind man when he tells you a funny joke. I said, "You're all right. I'll give that. I missed to be honest." So <laughs> I haven't, I haven't done any of it. I've been at home waiting for the day, like Shahid, when we can just get back to normality.
6: My name's Hania. I'm from Bradford. Um, so at the start of lockdown, I was a bit saddened by the fact that we had to stay indoors. Um, my 18th birthday, all my plans and stuff were cancelled, and then. I also lost to my really really close friends, so I was a bit gloomy inside and then I met a friend of a friend and she lived abroad and we started talking online and we had a lot in common and we soon became really really good friends. She asked me when my birthday was when we were getting to know each other and it was funny because my birthday was the exact day that they announced the lockdown. So we began sending letters to each other just as something that we thought would be a fun, cute idea and we asked questions about getting to know each other on a more personal level. So things that would go on our letters would be, what makes you happy? What makes you feel frustrated? What's your love language? What's something you want to try? And we would put maybe like a Polaroid picture of what we have done that day or something small inside the letter for the other person to read. So I mentioned one time that I really like dogs and She had a German Shepherd, and so she took some Polaroids of her dog and also slipped it in some of the letters for me. And I just remember thinking that I was so thankful for this friendship because it really changed my whole lockdown. At Christmas time, she told me, I sent you something a little bigger, so it might come in a small parcel. I mentioned to her that England is very cold and my feet get cold very quickly. And so she sent me like four pairs of fluffy socks. Um, She sent me some Cheetos, which are like one of my favourites. She sent me two K-pop albums because we both are really, really big K-pop fans. And those two albums were very expensive. Like they were things that I buy after saving up for a couple months. And then there was also Mexican Spice because she had been teaching me Spanish since she's Mexican. And we were learning a bit more about each other's cultures. I was just so touched. I felt so happy. Like there was just so many emotions and I also felt very blessed and They have turned my whole year around, and it doesn't have to be on that scale, but just showing appreciation and these small, random, like this was a completely random act of kindness, can just change somebody's whole year.
2: Danielle Baskin and Max Hawkins, friends, artists and creative developers, actually found themselves in the spotlight early on in lockdown one when they created an app called Quarantine Chat. They just wanted to help people through isolation by hooking them up. You know, perfect strangers talking to each other from across the globe. They didn't really think it was going to be such a big deal, but it got a lot more attention than they anticipated. So I spoke to Danielle about Quarantine Chat and a bunch of her other projects, and it turns out that Danielle has some pretty interesting experiences with strangers all the time. Oh, and she's amazing.
0: I am an artist that does a mix of performance art, pranks, real businesses, joke businesses, uh, visual stuff, and services. But I also have created something called Dial-Up, which is this app that connects people to talk on the phone with each other, surprise people all over the world, get paired in a random conversation with another person. But yeah, lots of different mediums and things. But I think the overall theme is delightful, whimsical experiences.
2: You mentioned that the Dial-Up app, and Mm -hmm. that is um, really what we're talking about here is is connecting people. Mm -hmm. And the app was a a way of strangers being able to connect with each other. Where did the idea come from and how did you get into that?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been working on different iterations of Dial-Up for maybe three years now, it started as a way to automate staying in touch with my friends. So basically robocalling my friends. I developed this system with my friend Max Hawkins that rang our phones every few days at a totally random time. Sometimes it was 4am, sometimes it was 2pm. And if we both picked up the phone, we would just chat. And so we never had to call each other it sort of simulated running into someone. So yeah. it was very delightful to have a surprise call without you know, intending to call someone. But it just started with him, and then we invited different friends on. So we had a small group of people that were all colliding over the phone. And over time, we just thought, you know, we should develop this system for lots of people to use. It doesn't have to be just for us. And we created a dial-up that connects people to discuss different topics. So there's calls on the night of the full moon that connects people in similar time zones to go look at the moon together. There's calls on weekends to discuss what book you're reading. There's calls on a Monday night to discuss what you're making for dinner. And there's all these, like, different commonalities that we're connecting people on however it's someone totally outside your social circle
2: yes it is now i signed up for it nice um, i thought i'd give it a go and you know as a comedian i do shows for hundreds of people and sometimes thousands of people mm. and it's it water off a duck's back for me now i was so nervous about, <laughs> <laughs> about having an audience of one like uh, just this one person who i didn't know
0: that's so popping funny
2: in on my phone. i'll admit I went into it expecting somebody not that dissimilar to me, okay? Mm-hmm. So I just thought maybe it'd be somebody in America, um, and because it's an app, maybe somebody who was in the 30s or 40s, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah. And I ended up talking to a girl that lived in Lebanon. Oh, wow.
0: um,
2: Where there was that huge explosion back in August, yeah. and she was working for an NGO trying to mop up the mess that was left behind by the disaster and all of the homelessness there. And I felt so out of my depth in the conversation mm-hmm. with her. But in a way it was such a an eye opener. Totally. And, and exactly what you're saying about like massively leaving the circle of your comfort zone. And and I mean I mentioned coronavirus to her. Uh, oh, how's the coronavirus situation there? Mm-hmm. And she said, well, it's not really even in the top five priorities at the right. moment. So I think it just puts into perspective, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, we do get tons of emails right after people's calls on how they didn't plan on talking to anyone that day, but they had a three hour long conversation and it totally changed their mood. Yeah. And we also have stories of people that ended up becoming close friends and talk to each other a few times a week now.
2: And quarantine chat is what you started, you know, at the beginning of the lockdowns last year, but that is yeah. kind of a branch of dial-up, is
0: it? You know, quarantine chat was supposed to be a three-week-long experiment because I thought, yeah. well, a lot of people are going into self-quarantine. And this was before the mandated lockdown. I thought yeah. people going into a mandated quarantine for two weeks after traveling will really miss out on the serendipity of talking to strangers. So we mm-hmm. should develop this, you know, daily random call of running into a stranger and optimized to match you with someone in another city so you could figure out what's going on there. And it was a little different than dial-up because the rest of dial-up is very interest-based. If you want to discuss tarot or cooking or being a parent, but quarantine chat is every day at a random time and the tagline was talk to someone else stuck inside.
2: Just there, you mentioned that one of the lines that you can subscribe to on it is tarot chat. And that's something else that you did, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I mean, I've been a tarot reader for, I guess, 11 years now.
2: And when lockdown started this time mm-hmm. last year, you set up a socially distanced tarot.
0: Yes. It's like, oh, you know, I'll do tarot readings at night for whoever's passing by. But instead of them coming into the shop, we'll do it through the window and I'll leave a number on the glass so they can call mm. and we could do it over the phone. And I'd hold up the cards to the window. So yeah, people just going on night walks, would stop in front of the window and call the number and I'd give them like a half hour long reading. I like to do projects that are totally out of the ordinary just because I think it's funny and humor makes people more comfortable just being themselves. Even when I was doing the tarot readings, I was like dressed up as a wizard.
2: Do you have a a memorable tarot reading that you've done, Danielle? Yeah,
0: well, um, because I did this tarot through my window, this ended up being filmed by a local news station. They made this three-minute-long segment about it. But when they made the segment, they recorded my window and it had my phone number. So they left my phone number up. I didn't realize that it flashed for a split second. And maybe a month later, I start getting these repeat calls... And I thought they were spam. I didn't know what they were. But one day I picked up the phone and this guy said he was an inmate at San Quentin State Prison and he was on death row and that he got my number for a tarot reading. They have TVs. And so there's a very limited set of stations that they can get, but they have NBC News. And he saw my number and he wrote it down. And so I was on the phone with this person there and gave him a tarot reading over the phone. It was a very intense reading. I thought he wouldn't ask me this question. He asked Mm -hmm. me if he'd get out of prison. And I said I couldn't answer yes or no, but I'm going to tell you what's going on in your life and how to feel about that question. But I can't answer these yes or no questions like that. I think I gave him this whole, the tarot reading was all about appreciating small moments. Why is it that you're so attracted
2: to encouraging strangers to connect?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that those moments, unexpected moments where you meet someone are the moments that have a very deep impression on people and actually feel like turning points. If you think about your own life and the people you know now, the way that you met them is probably this unexpected thing where it felt magical that they're suddenly in your life. If you increase the amount of times that that happens, that's just a more vivid way to live. Yeah, And so I like to create experiences where serendipity is highly engineered So it can just, like, happen to more people.
2: I think you do most things in an unexpected way. I urge people (laughs) to go and look at your website, daniellebaskin.com, if you've got a spare minimum three hours. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's pretty cool how people like Danielle can make digital communication feel creative and serendipitous and fun. So that takes us just about to the end of part one. And, you know, it's hopeful to learn that even under the most difficult of circumstances, we do have the capacity for kindness. But that doesn't mean that the whole concept of the kindness of strangers might not be a bit weird and complicated in the first place. And like I said from the start, for every heart Woman story of people being there for each other, there's another story of carelessness and exploitation. There's always our souls. So let's dip into the flip side. Join us in part two, where we get into the nitty gritty of why the kindness of strangers is something we maybe shouldn't have to depend on in the first place. And what happens when it isn't there.
5: Part one of that podcast, where we rely on the kindness of strangers and wonder if, generally, we're good people, or not so much, was hosted by Chris McCausland and featured Dr. Oliver Scott Curry, Danielle Baskin, and contributions from members of the public. The return was written by Shahid Iqbal Khan. The role of Adam was played by Alim Jader. The boss was played by Aisha Antoine, and the colleagues by Annabelle Baldwin and Gershwin Eustace Jr. Direction and sound design was by Ben and Max Ringham. The host script was written by Jennifer Bax and Chris McCausland. Full series production credits are available in the show description. That podcast is a Storyglass and ETT co-production.